friend who used to work at the church history department, Brittany Chapman Nash. And she used to, she one time she asked her Sunday school class on a piece of paper, I'm going to give you two minutes and I want you to name all of the church history men you can. And they filled up their papers. <laughs> and then she said, okay, turn it over. And I'm going to, I want you to write down all the church history women, you know, and they could only come up with the big three, like Emma, Eliza and Lucy Mack Smith. And sometimes Mary Fielding because she blessed the box, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's true. We have, we don't know much as much about the women. I think the book Saints is really helping people understand the role of women, but, but they are for the most part unknown. And that's the exciting part. That's why I love what I do because I feel like I'm giving them a voice and sometimes a face if we have a nice picture of them. Jenny Reeder, is this episode of the Cultural Hall excited to be able to share this conversation with you? Happened a couple weeks ago, and you have seen Jenny Reeder all over the place with her book, uh, First, that is uh, available through Deseret Book. And you can find a link to that at theculturalhall.com. Uh, right there on the front page, look for the big banner that says Deseret Book, and you can uh, click through. You can find all the books that you can find for 15% off with our partnership with Deseret Book. You can use that link or use the promo code Richie when you go to check out that's r-i-c-h-i-e be able to save 15 percent. why not save yourself some money uh 22 points about emma smith things that you may never have known or maybe have said huh I, yeah i think i remember hearing that uh with the absolutely pleasant and just fun to visit with uh jenny reader and you can't just say jenny and you can't just say doctor you have to say dr jenny reader you'll get you'll get the point once we get into this conversation enjoy this episode of the cultural hall if you're not following us on all social media I encourage you to do that if you're not a patreon saint go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall if you're not a part of the the uh the uh if you're not a part of the Cultural Hall Back Row, find that free group on Facebook. The point is, we're, there's a lot of conversations happening about the Cultural Hall, and you need to be in them. Are you not? Do it. And and listen to this episode of the Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. History nerds unite. We're going deep on this one. Uh, I'm joined today by Jenny Reeder. Now, I got an email a little while back. Contact at theculturalhall.com is where this email came into. Uh, so shout out to our friends over at Utah Taste Off for sponsoring our emails. Follow them on Instagram. Uh, Jenny, in her email, says, Hey, Richie, I'm a new listener to the Cultural Hall, and I am the 19th century women's history specialist at the Church History Department for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I also have a book that's coming out with Deseret Book on Emma Smith. Uh, first, The Life and Faith of Emma Smith, and I'd love to do a podcast episode with you if you're interested, to which I replied, yes, exclamation point, and then she said, okay, let's do this, and here we are. Jenny, welcome to the Cultural Hall. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Now, Thank the, you. The first question is, I would have to know, what is it that brought you to the Cultural Hall? How did you hear about it? You know, I had heard about the Cultural Hall, and I can't remember what the first episode that I listened to was, but I was laughing my head off and I thought it was, it sounded like so much fun. Oh, well, good, so, good. I'm glad that you enjoy it. I always think that with the church history department, because with over 500 episodes now, I like to think that if I went into the church history department, that I'd be like, oh, it's my buddy Jenny. And, and I would be able to be like, hey, do you remember when we chatted? But I've never actually met most of those people in real life. 
Well, you should come in sometime when we're open if that ever happens again. <laughs> yeah. It it seems like it might be coming. Um, Jenny, let me ask a little bit about you. What uh, what uh, made you so passionate to become, as you put it, the 19th century women's history specialist? What What even is that and why are you so passionate about it? You know, I took sort of a roundabout road to becoming a historian in the first place. I thought that I wanted to be a high school English teacher. Mm-hmm. And then I did my student teaching. <laughs> and then I was like, uh-uh. So I um, worked for a little while at the United Way of Utah County. And then I had this wise bishop who said, you should get a master's degree in human communication at Arizona State. And I was like, okay. <laughs> So I did that. I loved the people I met. I did not love my program. Arizona is way too hot. And I came back to Utah and worked as a research assistant for two historians, Carol Cornwall Madsen and Jill Mulvader at BYU. And they did women's history, um, Mormon women's history. And I felt like their words were whispering to me from the pages of the Nauvoo Relief Society Minute Book. So that's what converted me to uh, women's history. I had to get uh, another master's degree. So I went to NYU, New York University, and then I got a PhD in American history at George Mason University. So I was on the East Coast for nine years and I love the East Coast. And now I'm here back in the Rocky Mountains and so, I work for the church. So I need to apologize then. I should be calling you Dr. Jenny Reader. I'm sorry Please. that I didn't do that. Please. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding, don't. But for the record, a lot of my friends and even my mom call me Jenny Reader like it's one word. Because, you know, I grew up in the 70s when there were everybody was named Jenny. So you had to have a first and last name. Well, sure. Dr. Jenny Reader. It, it doesn't work so much with the doctor attachment on it, but I'll keep no. trying. So, you, okay. so you've been back here uh, working for the church history department for how long? Um, this is my eighth year. So, so help me understand, because I think... Um, Certainly, it has been the past that it's this way, that it, it seems like it's a bunch of men in a lowly lit room where they're like, blah, blah, did you, blah, blah. like, that's what I envision the history department. Is that still the case? Uh, no, it isn't. There are more men than women, but there are a few of us women, and we always have to stick up for ourselves. Just kidding. <laughs> it's actually a really great place to be. Um, and I love, my office is right in the middle of the Joseph Smith Papers people, and they're really smart and nerdy, and I love them. And so I can ask them any question that I have about Joseph Smith and Curlin and Nauvoo and all of that. And it's fun. It's great. I'm on a, a couple of different teams. I'm working on um, a couple of different projects, and I love it. Now, being able to, to uh, study that time, and certainly as we're going to get into Emma Smith um, in the later parts of the cultural hall, uh, in this episode in particular, we've got 20, 20, uh, 22 interesting points that maybe people don't know about Emma Smith, so that'll be coming up. The church has started to do quite uh, a bit in podcasting itself between the Priesthood Restored and also as, uh, I think it was, I think Spencer came on. and, and Spencer sort of, McBride. Yeah, he came on and sort of let us know that there's one that's coming up in October of this year about Nauvoo, which is super exciting as well. Uh, I've got to think that maybe there is a Relief Society one in the works and maybe Dr. Jenny Reeder can spoil that that's coming. <laughs> um, I Actually, it's funny because just the other day I was thinking about doing a podcast series I'm also the lead on a project where we're collecting all of the Eliza R. Snow discourses. Mm. And we have over 1,250 of them. 
So we're putting them on the website, thechurchhistoriansofpress.org. And I thought it would be fun to do a, a podcast series on Eliza and maybe even like a symposium on Eliza. The, the voices of the LDS women in especially the early days of the church, it's something that wasn't really talked about for a while certainly has started to get more voice recently, but in comparison, what we know about the men of the time compared to the women of the time, there there is no comparison. Absolutely. I had a friend who used to work at the church history department, Brittany Chapman Nash, and she used to, she one time she asked her Sunday school class, on a piece of paper, I'm going to give you two minutes and I want you to name all of the church history men you can. And they filled up their papers. And then she said, okay, turn it over. And I'm gonna, I want you to write down all the church history women you know. And they could only come up with the big three, like Emma, Eliza, and Lucy Mack Smith. And sometimes Mary Fielding, because she blessed the ox, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's true. We have, we don't know much as much about the women. I think the book Saints is really helping people understand the role of women. But, it, but they are, for the most part, unknown. And that's the exciting part. That's why I love what I do, because I feel like I'm giving them a voice and sometimes a face if we have a nice picture of them. As a woman, as a woman talking about women, why is that so valuable? I'll give you that huge softball question of why, why do we need to do this? Well, I think we're living in a really exciting time where... We are ex- have higher expectations of the partnership of men and women working together. And it's really interesting if we go back in time, we see that they did work together earlier in the, in the early days of the church. So I think it's really exciting. Also, I like to steal a word from, or a phrase from C.S. Lewis in Shadowlands. He has a student who says, I read to know that I'm not alone. So I like to say, I read women's words to know that I'm not alone. That they had similar experiences. Um, yes, I am very grateful that I did not cross the plains and that I did not cross frozen rivers and carry babies and um, not have Advil or air conditioning. So <laughs> it's slightly different now, but a lot of the same experiences in in speaking up for ourselves and in being active politically and doing other kinds of things. Last year, we celebrated the 150th anniversary of women voting, and these were the women that got that going. So they were actually incredible women. And we get to learn that many of them, um, sort of on the forefront of that, members of the church are certainly uh, involved with the church. Um, I'm thinking of people like Susan B. Anthony, who not a member of the church, but several members of the church worked alongside her uh, as far as the suffragist movement. And then also there are a, a, a more and more resources coming up for us to learn about LDS women. I'm thinking of the LDS Women podcast, which if people haven't checked out, oh my gosh, that's awesome. And then yeah. I was surprised to see in uh, the Gospel Library app, there's a whole section on 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 women that I've never heard mentioned within the walls of the church. So I always am like, hey, did you see this? Tell people a little bit about that. Yeah. So when my first project when I came to work for the church history department was a collection of women's discourses from the beginning of the church till the present day. And that is the book at the pulpit, 185 years of discourses of Latter-day Saint women. And it's on their gospel library app. So I feel like that gives it some sort of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. So you can actually use it in your talks and in your lessons and your family home evenings. Um, That was a lot of fun. We just wanted to show that women 
have spoken publicly in the church since the very beginning. So Kate Holbrook and I did that. I did the first half, she did the second half. And I realized quickly that she could find stuff on the internet and I had to dig through minute books and old newspapers and journals. So it was slightly a different ball game, but it was really, really fun. So we have some amazing women, women that you've heard of, women that you've never heard of. And it, it was a lot of fun. Sometimes I felt like they were leaving me breadcrumbs because they wanted me to find them and find more interesting things about them. So that was exciting. There's also on there, uh, the first 50 years of Relief Society. And this is a collection of documents from the first 50 years of Relief Society. I mean, I know that's <laughs> yeah. the original title. <laughs> But it's really cool. It has all of the Nauvoo Relief Society minutes and a lot of important things, both by men and women, about the Relief Society and about the work that women were doing in the, the first 50 years of the church. And I, this is a, a funny thing. I actually worked on that book as a research assistant before I went to graduate school. Hmm. And they, they finished the book before I came back to work for the church. But I still feel like that, that book was what really brought me to the, to the history of these women. It's awesome. So many resources and underused. So I just wanted to make sure, totally. uh, you know, not only because you had involvement with them, but even if you hadn't, I mean, these are stories, these are uh, talks that people need to be able to know that even exist for you so easy, right? Like take your phone, go boop, boop. Oh, there right. I can read it. In addition to your other studies that, that you might do. Jenny, what else do we need to know about you? Are there, are there other things? Uh, you live here in Utah. You obviously- I do. Oh, yeah. Can I mentioned a couple more things on of, the Gospel Library. Of app. course. So there's some things that I think that a lot of people aren't aware of. We have, if you go to the tab that's Restoration and Church History, and under that, there's Church History Essay Topics. And these are short essays about events and people and places in Saints, Volumes 1 and 2, that if you might, if you want to learn more about. So there's one on Emma Smith, for example. I don't know who wrote that. I, I bet I do. I bet it was Dr. Jenny Reader. Yeah. And there's one on, I mean, there's tons of them. But if you want to hear something funny, there's one on the hymn book, the first hymn book. And I'm there's a video in that one. And so I'm in that video talking about the first hymn book. And I had just had some health issues and I was on steroids. And they have me. <laughs> this is funny because now everyone's going to go watch it and mm-hmm. say, oh, yeah. It's true. It's awful. They have me sitting in front of a window inside, but the sun is coming through the window and you can see my, first of all, my face is huge from steroids, but you can see all this peachy down fuzz on my cheeks because it's just at the right angle. It's awesome. Yeah, what what every woman or man wants is right. this great unflattering video for the yeah. whole world to see. Yeah, yeah. Now I it's want awesome. now I want to go check it out. I know uh, I told you. <laughs> now are the the steroids obviously for the time when you were in the bodybuilding competition, which people may not know that about you. Huge they, bodybuilder, Dr. Jenny Reader. I mean, if they saw me, they would immediately know. <laughs> Just kidding, they wouldn't. I'm a weakling. <laughs> But I did have, when I was in graduate school in Washington, D.C., I was diagnosed with leukemia. So that was fun. Not. I had just been called as a Relief Society president, and um, I was writing my dissertation, and I got acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So I had to take a year off and, and do a lot of fun chemo and lose all my hair. And then when I actually, when I moved back to Salt Lake City, about six weeks, I, I had finished my dissertation and graduated. I got a dream job 
working for the church. I bought a house. And six weeks later, uh, my leukemia was back. So this time I was at LDS Hospital and I needed a bone marrow transplant. So I had to take a year off of work. And my brother was my donor. And then two years later, my leukemia came back. So I've actually, it's recurred like four times. And so my second brother was my second bone marrow transplant. So it has almost been three years, four years. I don't do public math, but it's (laughs) almost been four years since I've had that second transplant and I've been in remission and I've been good. Wow. Wow. I mean, we could do, we could talk for the next 45 minutes about that. And I know that, uh, you know, it would be not only heartbreaking, but also inspirational as you've been able to find your way sort of through it and the lessons that you've learned. I would be quick to ask you though, what, what would be the one thing um, that people could take away or that you would that you would share with people. It's likely that you know people in some form or fashion will find them either themselves or someone that they love with a cancer diagnosis and it seems like at that point the world just comes crashing down. I, I haven't ever experienced it, but that's what I sort of infer. So what what can you what can you say to people that would find that happening? Well I have to say that I've had a lot of people say weird things to me like, oh, maybe you need to eat better and eat more plants and green stuff. Or maybe you needed a course correction. And so God gave you cancer. Or maybe this is all part of God's plan for you, to which I like to reply, I don't believe in the same God you believe in, because I don't think he's going to say, hey, Jenny, let's give you this. It's going to suck for a really long time. Um, I think that I just chose to be born into a mortal body that was imperfect and my DNA shifted a little bit. And thankfully I live in a time where there are incredible medical breakthroughs. And even in the different times that I've had cancer, there've been new things that we've been able to do. So if it comes back, I think that there'll be something new we can try mm-hmm. or I'll just die and I'll be fine, you know? Do, do you suppose that you lead your life differently? Totally. I think I totally live my life, lead my life differently. I used to run marathons and take body pump classes legit um, before cancer, which is why it was really weird when all of a sudden I was diagnosed with this. Um, And my lungs have been really affected. And so I can't move around as fast as I could before. And I just found out that I have cataracts (laughs) in my eyes and that's from radiation. So there's just always, my body will never, ever be the same. And I think for that reason, I'm all the more grateful for it. So I try to take care of it, which means that I try to take naps. Mm. (laughs) I can get behind that. Um, But I'm wondering, Jenny, have you tried? No, I'm not going to do that to you. (laughs) I, I, if, yeah, if, if there's one takeaway that we can that we can do from people in, in any sort of those things. We, we, to, to our credit, we as members of the church, I feel like, like we want to, you know, either put a, a good coat of paint on something or like be hopeful and inspirational. And I feel like we just, we, we can take the lesson to just be like, I am sorry. Yeah. And that's, yeah, so and that's it. There's a, um, a podcaster historian, religious historian that I follow. Her name is Kate Bowler. She's a Mennonite, um, but she's a a professor of divinity at Duke University. Mm -hmm. And she's written a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved. (laughs) And she also, she had pancreatic cancer when she was in her 30s. And she just, she just gets really real about it. And she's like, casseroles are awesome. They brought me casseroles, but 
And that's what I needed. Anyway, she just is really real about it and helps people realize, you know, this is a, a, a yucky part of life and we just have to learn how to deal with it without saying stupid things. Uh, the, the example of your life, I think, is one that, I mean, sans all the awesome stuff that we're going to talk about coming up in the upcoming blocks of the cultural hall, I feel like already people will be able to be like, man, that is that is someone who, you know, doesn't give up, who just keeps going and says, all right, come what may, let's do this. Let's do this. Yeah. In fact, I have to tell you an interesting fact. Because I have the bone marrow of my two brothers, I now have male blood which at one point my boss at work at the church said, well, now you can get the priesthood. (laughs) But I also, my blood type has changed from my original blood type to my first brother's blood type to my second brother's blood type. And so I think I should be able to commit a crime. Yeah. Yes. And they would never catch you. (laughs) Right. I'm not going to encourage you where this is recorded (laughs) and being shared to commit a crime. But those of us that are watching the video know that I am definitely telling you you should commit a crime. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to do the first 11 of 22 things you did not know about Emma Smith. We'll spend a lot of time on some of these and maybe not so much time on some of the other ones. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. I've got about 60 seconds to talk to you about Best DJ in Utah. Now, here's the deal. I have almost attained this for real, meaning I almost have the most reviews in the state of Utah as far as DJ services go. How about that? That's Best DJ in Utah, and I didn't just buy the web domain. That's actually some proof in the pudding. Here's the deal. Doing lots of events. I'm able to do it from a socially uh, distant, a physically distant distance That's a lot of distance, I just said. Uh, But if you want to find out more about how I may be able to make your party, whether that be holiday or family reunion, or you've got a wedding coming up, make that the best event it possibly can be, I would hope that you would please join me over at bestdjinutah.com. You can find out about pricing, ask for a quote, and be able to correspond with me there. The website, again, is bestdjinutah. And don't let the name fool you. I'm going to Texas next month. bestdjinutah.com. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly. One with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're going to be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, if you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, we've arranged with some banks to offer 12-month special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now. Because at PC Laptops, we're here for you, and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, uh, I want you to go to Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. If you love what we do, you love the conversations that we bring to you, you love the guests that we have on, and you recognize that doing two hours worth of show available in podcast form a week is a lot of work, and you think, you know, I'd like to you know, support someone who does that, you can go to Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall and put your money where your mouth is, pal. 
It takes uh, as little as $5 a month. Also, you can do the $10 a month. It gets you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where you get to watch all of the videos and join us there. Patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Jenny, you have sent me this list of 22 things that uh, we may or may not know about uh, Emma Smith. That's what I found myself doing as I sort of went through the list. I was like, knew that. Ooh, didn't know that. Knew that uh, as we talk about these things. So I'm just going to, as you provided them to me, I'm going to hit them up and then I'll ask sort of questions around it and then we'll move on when we've exhausted the topic. Does that sound okay? Sounds awesome. All right. Number one, you pause it. She was buried in a purple dress. I would, I guess, ask uh, either so what or what's the significance of the dress? I just think it was one of her favorite dresses. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, at the time, certainly members of the church now, members that have been endowed would be, you know, buried in their temple clothes. Was this a consideration? What with Emma not going west with the church or anything like that? Yeah, I think also that that practice didn't really happen until a little bit later. So they just uh, buried them in what they had. Also, it's true that that was a part of it. She did not go West and she she never went to the Nauvoo Temple and participated in temple ordinances there. She participated in temple ordinances before that was completed. And so it wasn't a common practice to be buried in your temple clothing. Do we know where she got the dress from or any sort of significance around it? No, I think she probably made it herself, and she really liked the color purple. Fair enough. I mean, if it, <laughs> if it's what you're going to be for, uh, you know, until the resurrection, I say pick your purple. Um, num- number two, you said, and, and I guess maybe I could have assumed this, but I didn't know this, um, but that she was an excellent horsewoman. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so she grew up in Harmony, Pennsylvania, on the banks of the Susquehanna River, and her brothers taught her how to ride horses. And here's an interesting story. The day after Joseph received the plates in Manchester, New York, he was off trying to earn some money to buy a lock so that they could secure the plates. And his father, Joseph Smith Sr., heard that some people were going to try to go steal the plates. And he told Emma, And Emma knew that she needed to go warn Joseph, but he was like an hour away by horse. And back in the day, if there was a horse that wasn't in a corral or tethered up, that horse was free game. Hmm. So she rode a horse bareback all the way to get Joseph and he hurried back and they fixed everything. Wow. Right. And often in Nauvoo, she and Joseph would go horseback riding out into the country and talk and spend time together. But she, he was the, leader of the Nauvoo Legion and she would often join him and she had this beautiful black riding habit and people said she looked very regal on her horse as they mustered the troops of the Nauvoo Legion together. I think that that maybe and I hear this through several of the points that um that you shared that we'll go over. I so I don't think that she was like a like a soft lady, but I think she was tougher than I think than maybe we then we maybe we consider right both physically tougher and like mentally tough and maybe we give her the mental tough but like I I don't think that she'd put up with much and she'd get pretty feisty yeah and that's I think one thing that drew me to her because sometimes I'm pretty feisty (laughs) but I think she learned to do that and she because she had to like she was kind of scrappy but also very refined and she knew when she had to speak up for herself or for other people and I love that about her Absolutely. Number three, you say it was not a normal thing for a woman to edit a hymn book. So it was a big deal for Emma to compile one. And I guess 
yeah, I guess I was like, uh, oh, oh, yeah, I, I hadn't even considered that given the time. Right. Yeah. So in 1830, she received the revelation from Joseph through the Lord, from the Lord through Joseph. And one of the things that she was charged to do is to select hymns for a hymn book. And really, she she was one of the first women to ever do that. And so she started collecting hymns from different places and different faith traditions. A lot of times hymns were printed in the newspaper. And so she could have taken hymns from her hometown newspaper in Harmony. Um, but then later they moved to Kirtland and she would send the hymns to William W. Phelps, who was in, in um, Independence, Missouri, and who had a press. And he would the plan was that he was going to print the hymn book. So he would sometimes include those hymns in the newspaper, the evening and the morning star. And then that press got destroyed and they had to make other plans. So it was actually not for five years until the hymn book was actually completed. What I love about it is that she was actually able to find hymns that would speak to all the members of the church. Of course, they had all come from different faith traditions. And so she included congregational hymns and Baptist hymns and Methodist hymns, and of course, hymns by Latter-day Saints. And another fun fact is that the hymn book was really small. It was small enough that you could stick it in your pocket. Hmm. And there was also no music printed in the hymn books. And and I kind of wonder if maybe they just didn't have good enough press presses that could make music. Um, but it was also because they would sing hymns to different tunes. And so they would have the meter, the type of meter that the song was. So it, it was really quite a feat. It, 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 so a couple things that just sort of speak back one thing that you said. So they're not the notes and like music staffs that we think of when we think of a hymn book. It was just words. So unless you knew it was a hymn book, you'd be like, oh, maybe a book of poetry or verse. I think, yeah. that, I think that's significant. And then secondly, when you think about missionary tracks, right? Like those things that would help those to feel the spirit and be converted when we know that music is such a powerful resource for that, knowing that in addition to probably the the Book of Mormon, as it was translated and then printed, this would be one of the other early first tracks to be able to help people feel the spirit and, and bring them to Christ. Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that because I think she, I don't know that we understand the power that she had with this project in particular, because she was able to influence the way that early Latter-day Saints worshipped, mm -hmm. whether that was individually or collectively. And because of that, because of the types of hymns she chose, those were the things that they believed and that they sang and that they spoke of. So she really influenced the whole direction of Latter-day Saint worship from the beginning. So she wrote another, she compiled another hymn book in 1841. And so from between the time of 1835, 1836, and 1841, it's really interesting to see the difference in those two hymn books. For example, they were, at first, they were all about building Zion. They were all going to go to Missouri and build Zion. And that sort of fell apart. Mm -hmm. So by 1841, they're in Nauvoo. And so while the first hymn book has hymns all about building Zion and all excited, the second one is a little more, I guess, centered on Jesus Christ and the fact that he's going to make all things better. So after all the trials of Missouri, now they're, they have a new perspective. And again, she totally facilitated that shift. Which, which I think is also interesting as we apply it to uh, today, where the church is compiling, compiling yet another hymn book 
to be able to look to the examples and how that instructs our faith from the earliest hymn book to whenever we receive the latest uh, hymn book to see what the focus or through line of through a lot of those songs that we'll get will be and how many of those old songs we will see and and to be able to instruct that that's cool that is an awesome that is an awesome thing we're we are uh We've got a lot of things on this list to be able to get to. And now you're queuing up the big one or one of the big ones as I see it. Number four is in her later life after Joseph's death, she always insisted that Joseph never practiced polygamy. Right. Let's just start with the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just let's just (laughs) let's just get after it. So so this seems this seems like what is she reframing it and calling it something else? Is she denying it? Because we know both because of the Joseph Smith papers and because of his own word and practice that he did in fact practice polygamy. Yeah, we do know that. And I think it's really important to to understand from the very beginning that Joseph Smith's polygamy was very different than Brigham Young's polygamy. Polygamy in Nauvoo was very different than polygamy in Utah. And part of that is because Joseph Smith, um, only, only a few people practiced it and he wanted everyone to keep it confidential and quiet and not talk about it, which of course meant there was a lot of gossip and secrets came out and a lot of people took advantage of that. Brigham Young, on the other hand, in 1852 was very public about polygamy. So part of me thinks that she didn't speak of it because she made a covenant not to. Hmm. She promised not to. Um, Another part of me thinks she didn't speak of it because she hated it. (laughs) Yeah. And she didn't want her sons to be caught up her children to be caught up and concerned and questioned about that. She didn't want to explain it to her kids. But I also think that the longer she lived and that the more it became this huge hot topic in Utah and there was all this anti-federal legislation, she just kind of got stuck. You know what I mean? And she couldn't all of a sudden say, oh yeah, you guys, it's true. We really did practice polygamy. And so she was just in a really hard spot. Do you think that it was her uh, denial of the practice of polygamy that has sort of enshrouded that idea within the church in the last 150 years? Because there are a lot of people who until 30 years ago, maybe even, wouldn't have known that that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. If she would have been more forthright with it, uh, interesting, by the way, that you propose a, it could be part of a covenant thing. But if she if she would have been more forthright, would we have known more and, and maybe embraced it earlier? You know, I don't think so, because I think because it it sort of became an embarrassing part of our history. Mm -hmm. And and starting around 1900, when the early 1900s, when Reed Smoot was made a senator in Utah, the Senate really did not want to admit him because there was all this reputation of Mormons and Utahns practicing polygamy and made them very different. And so starting at that period, people just sort of stopped talking about polygamy in general. And they talked more about Joseph Smith and the first vision um, than the polygamy part of it. So they were trying to present this view of Mormons and Utah as a a typical American religion and become more Americanized. Yeah, it's interesting how we do that. There's some of that crossover with like race relations in the church as well that, you know, before the... the, um, you know, the proclamation that that any worthy man could receive the priesthood. You know, a lot of people were sort of talking about it, etc. Then we say, hey, yeah, everybody can have the priesthood. And now we're like, I don't know why you guys keep bringing this up. We've given the priesthood to everyone. And they're like, because this was 1978, for crying out loud. So, yeah, uh, it's funny how different churches deal with different uh, historical issues in different ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
I liked this one. Number five is the neighbor kids remembered her delicious cookies. I'm a good. I'm a fan of a good cookie. Tell me about these cookies. Oh, yeah, me too. So I don't know. I don't know her recipe or anything. Oh no, that's that was my next question. Because making Emma Smith cookies, how cool is that for a relief society and or ward project? Right, especially if they could sell it at Desert Book, right? <laughs> so she, we just have these memories of children that lived around Nauvoo when when Emma's older and they had grown up to be adults and they were were writing letters to a newspaper about Emma Smith and they all said she made the best cookies but we don't we don't even know like a, a type of cookie no oh. i mean i would like to say it was a nice peanut butter chocolate chip yeah but yeah. i sort of doubt it yeah maybe Maybe like a sugary molasses cookie. I don't. I don't probably. Know. I don't know. Some, probably something more like that. Uh, this one I found to be completely heartbreaking. Uh, number six is she never saw her parents again after she left Harmony, Pennsylvania, in 1830. Yeah. So she loved her family. She grew up in a really tight family. They were well known throughout the community. They had they had become uh, wealthy in a sense, and were very prominent. And when Joseph came to work to dig for silver, there was a purported silver mine nearby, her father became very protective of Emma. And even though her sisters had married poor, uneducated men, and they all stayed around in the Harmony area, he didn't like Joseph's religious ideas. And when she and Joseph left Harmony in August of 1830, she never saw them again. And she never heard for them. They didn't correspond through letters or anything um, until after she heard that her father had died. Her nephew came and told her her father died. And then she wrote to her mother and was like, mom, I have all these kids now. This is where we are. You should come move up here, even if you don't want to join the church. Uh, but her mother was not in good health. So she she remained there. And they were both buried. Her her father and her mother were buried by Emma's first child that died in, in, in Harmony. But I think it's interesting when the doctrine of baptism for the dead was introduced, Emma was baptized for her parents. I have a few questions around this um, because I think it was in my reading of Saints that you really get the impression that Emma's parents did not care for Joseph Smith in a very strong way. Not like, we don't like your religious ideals, but you take care of our daughter just fine. So I guess go ahead and, you know, you have our blessing. Like, it seems to me that it was very much uh, you choose him or you choose us and go your way. Yeah, so we don't have any records that specifically state that, but I think we can certainly imply that. Mm. They they were worried that he actually wasn't providing for Emma. In fact, while he was working on translating the Book of Mormon, she had a dairy, and she's the one that supported the family. And so they were worried that he wouldn't be able to provide um, an, an income to support their family. It seems almost counter to what we think when we think of like the early members of the church, right? Like the one person in the family, they find the gospel and then everyone joins and they they rejoice at the truthfulness that comes of the gospel. But but for the Hales, nope. They said no, please and thank you and then never spoke to her again. That That is a heartbreaking story. It is. And it's interesting because a lot of her siblings actually ended up in Illinois um, around Nauvoo. Not close, but in the same state. And her 
she she loved that she was able to go visit her siblings with um, and to reignite those relationships. Her brother, after Joseph died, wrote her this letter and he just said, I'm so sorry that your husband died. I love you. Um, she had a nephew that came to Nauvoo and visited and he was later baptized by Joseph, but that was about it. Now, certainly people hearing that will go, oh, I I don't know that I'd ever realize that. Because again, we just sort of make these assumptions in the narratives that we tell ourselves where it's like, okay, well, Emma's parents were a little hard-nosed at first, but I'm sure they came around because this is the prophet of the restored church. And that just wasn't the case. Uh, well, that's what I love because she's such a real person. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's just real. It's not perfect. And I love that. Um, volumes upon volumes have been spoken about this next point. This is number seven. She was the president and that is the first president of the Relief Society. Yes, she was. In her revelation in 1830, the Lord called her an elect lady and told her that she would expound scripture and exhort the church. And it wasn't until 12 years later, when the Relief Society was organized in Nauvoo, on March 17, 1842. And she was elected or voted president. And Joseph said, now we know that she is the elect lady. He made some incredible connections between the, the restoration in 1842 and the ancient church where they had an elect lady. And he said that the church was never fully organized until the Relief Society was organized. He considered the Relief Society as a companion to the priesthood, as a part of the priesthood, just sort of a different order or a different quorum, this group of women. And they called her the presidentess, <laughs> which I love. And they really became a great thing. And then uh, Brigham Young shut down the Relief Society in 1845. And I think a lot of us don't realize that. But he, I think, felt threatened by these aggressive women who asserted their religious authority. And he even at one point said that it was the fault of the Relief Society that Joseph and Hiram were killed. Oh. So it wasn't until 20 years later in Utah that Brigham said, oh gosh, we need help and the women can do a lot of help. So he reorganized the Relief Societies. He asked Eliza Archnow to help do that because she had been the secretary in Nauvoo and she had the Relief Society minute book. So she knew how to do it in the right order that Joseph had taught. Do we feel like that the uh, Relief Society, this isn't one of your points, but I'm curious, that the Relief Society today is empowered as the Relief Society of Emma Smith? And if so, great. And if so, and if not, why not? So I kind of think that we live as women below our privileges, that we don't have the same, we don't have the same practices that they had in those days. And we also don't have the same tight unity that they had as well. We're not as involved in each other's lives, you know, especially during the pandemic where we can't even see each other. I think it's a little bit different, but I think that it can be. And I think that if we come to understand the religious authority and the excitement and passion for caring for one another and caring for the poor and caring for the poor in spirit, that we can make a huge difference in the world. I like that. I like that a lot. And we could, again, on any one of these points, spend several, many more minutes. But I do want to make sure that we cue all these up. Uh, we've got a couple more before we take a break. How about she was sealed to Joseph before she was endowed? Talk to me about what that's all about. Yeah, so I, I like to say that when Joseph had this first vision, the um, angel Moroni, whoever, Jesus, did not come down and give him a binder of the church handbook. <laughs> he had to figure things out as he went. 
And I also think that he saw the priesthood as returning people to this power of God that was connected to the Abrahamic covenant and the family and bringing them all together and that at the house of Israel and that the priesthood was what connected them. And so he, he also received revelation incrementally. So the men were, were endowed in May of 1842 and the women weren't endowed until, um, until September of 1843. So that's almost a year later. But in that time, he learned and received revelation about sealing for eternity and all of that. So he and Emma were sealed in 1843, which I think connected her to him and to his priesthood. And then at that point, I think that he thought he he would then endow her with that same temple uh, priesthood. Hmm. And I also think that part of his idea of a plural marriage was connecting women that didn't have a connection to the priesthood through a, either a father or a husband. And so a lot of these women were married to other men and some of them were young and single and orphaned. And he, by this, he was, he was bringing them into his family and therefore sharing and expanding his own priesthood. And so that became a part of what the temple ceremony was later on. Uh, number nine, she was the first woman to be endowed and she led early temple ordinances for women. Yeah, I think this is fascinating. I think that the same way that men can often trace their priesthood lineage back to Joseph Smith and Peter, James and John, right? Mm -hmm. My grandfather had one of those charts hanging in his office. I think that if we kept those records, women could also connect their temple lineage back to Emma. Um, she was the first woman, and then she gave the the initiatory and the and the temple endowment. She led those for women. It's interesting that the first uh, four women that were the General Relief Society presidents were also the matron of the temple. So there's a huge connection mm. between the Relief Society and the temple. That would be Emma, and then Eliza R. Snow, Zina Young, and Bathsheba Smith. And Zina and Bathsheba were both in the Salt Lake Temple. Eliza was in the endowment house in Salt Lake. So there's this connection between the Relief Society and the temple and between the Relief Society and priesthood. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Now, uh, a lot of people, maybe they knew this, maybe they didn't. I know when I first learned of it, I was sort of surprised. I went, oh, yeah, I guess I hadn't even considered that. Um, But that she stayed in Nauvoo and never came to Utah. We're really involved in Emma and Joseph's life until he's martyred. And then we just kind of go, all right. And then Brigham Young took the church west. And we, we, I don't know that everyone thinks the through line as to what happened to Emma. Right. So she, there's a lot going on here. There's still a lot, there's a lot of tension between Brigham and Emma. And I think part of that was because they both loved Joseph so much but Brigham was really interested in protecting the church and Emma was really interested in protecting her family. And she had no idea where they would live or who would take care of them. She knew Nauvoo and she knew that she had a home there and that she could make a living there. I think it's also, I think it's also important to think of what it says in section 25 that the Lord tells Emma to go with Joseph at the time of his going. And I think that meant different things at different times. And perhaps when he was dead, she was to remain with Joseph hmm. and she was later buried next to him. So she, uh, that 
totally changed the whole trajectory of Emma's life, just that decision to stay in Nauvoo. But she was there with her mother-in-law, Lucy Mack Smith. Her siblings were scattered around Illinois and in that area. And it was the one thing she felt like she could really hold on to and, and make sense of. Also around that time, and, and this is not the place for it, but it's fascinating as, as people study this time, I think that we, again, adopt the narrative of, you know, Joseph is martyred, and then it's the next day that there's a meeting where people hear the voice or see Joseph and the voice of Brigham Young, and then they follow him. And there was several years wherein people sort of were like, oh, now what do we do? And people followed um, individuals like the likes of James Strang, which we have done an interview about. Like Lucy Mack said, yeah, this is the guy. I'll follow him and we'll do this. And then, you know, ended up not completely following him. And others as well, Sidney Rigdon, some of these other folks who said, let's go, let's do this thing. And and so uh, to to follow to the end of their life, each of these individuals after the time of Joseph's martyrdom is a whole discussion in and of itself. Because I think as the mainstream church, we just go, we went west. We got wagons and then we we went west. And for so many, they just didn't. Yeah. And I think that's really fascinating because there's so many breakoffs that, but we all hold that same central beginning of the Book of Mormon and of Joseph Smith as prophet and of Emma Smith as his wife. And so I think they're sort of this central core. And one time I, I heard someone explain too, I mean, the other, the biggest breakoff was obviously the RLDS, the Reorganized Church, which is now known as the Community of Christ. But someone called, called both of those groups the Mountain Saints and the Prairie Saints hmm. and were cousins. And I think that's really important. And of course, years later in 1860, Emma and her son join up with the Prairie Saints in the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, but there were people that often came to her throughout the rest of her life and said, come join our church. We're the true church or come with us. We'll make you this important position or whatever. But she was really reluctant and didn't want to do anything for several years until um, her sons were adults. The last one uh, that we'll do and then we'll take a break is that she was not a fan of Brigham Young and he was not a fan of her. I think anecdotally, we all sort of know this, but is there an inciting incident or just a series of mistreatments or, you know, varied discussions? Well, there's certainly some great stories, right? Mm -hmm. And um, at one point, there's a story that Brigham says Joseph would have to go to hell for Emma. And I think that's sort of twisted. At, At one time, Joseph was watching Emma do something. And he just was so full of love. And he said to someone next to next to him, you know, I would go to hell for that woman, Mm. meaning how much he loved her, he would do anything for her. But I think there was this sense of competition for Joseph's attention between Brigham and Emma. Brigham also said that it was Emma's fault. He said that she cost the best blood of this restoration of the restoration, meaning it was her fault that Joseph was killed. And he later called in in Salt Lake City, he called her both a saint and a devil and was never very um, complimentary of her. So I think it's interesting, even after after Joseph died, Brigham was back east on a mission and he came back to Nauvoo in August. So that's two months later. And he never came to visit Emma or to talk to her, console her. But he did come to say, oh, hi, we need to muster the Nauvoo Legion. So I'm going to need Joseph's uniform and his horse. And she's like, no way are you taking his uniform. But And she did let him take his horse. And his clerk actually ran the horse into the ground, like just rode him so hard that that horse was never the same again. 
and also Brigham appointed bodyguards to watch over the mansion house, which made Emma feel all the more um, under his thumb, which was frustrating. But I think this is fascinating. So Brigham Young died in August of 1877. Emma died in May of 1879. And they both said the same thing as they died. And that is Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. So I, I like to think that they hopefully eventually in heaven made up um, because they both loved and supported Joseph. Hmm. But hmm. that's my hope. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get to the second half of the 22 things that we need to know about Emma Smith. We're queuing up number 12 when we get back. Uh, We'll do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Huge shout out to the folks over at Deseret Book for this episode and other great episodes that they supply us, the authors, for. If you want to save 15% at Deseret Book, make sure you use the link that's on the front of theculturalhall.com and you'll see all of the different authors and books that we've had here in the Cultural Hall. You can save 15% on any of them or when you go to checkout at DeseretBook.com. Be sure you use the promo code Richie. That's R-I-C-H-I-E. Use the promo code Richie. Save yourself 15%. All right, right, let's get back to this interview. Don't forget that you can become uh, a part of the Cultural Hall back row. Maybe it is not in your, um, your finances to be a part of the Patreon group. There is a group that is a little bit larger, full of nerdy people who love the Cultural Hall, and just like being able to go side tangent on each episode. When Jenny said this and blah, 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 and then we go off and, and it's comments upon comments, uh, that group is searchable, findable, and uh, accessible for anyone who listens to The Cultural Hall. Find it on Facebook. It's called The Cultural Hall Back Row. Number 12, you alluded to this early. I would pick up any pieces that maybe we missed. She ran a dairy and provided for the family in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so some people believe that she taught school and she was paid with cows. <laughs> um, she was not an eight-cow woman that we know of. Yeah. <laughs> but she, there is archaeological evidence that around the Joseph and Emma Smith home that there was a dairy and that she made uh, butter and cream and sold that to support their family. So I think that's one reason actually that she did not go to Fayette when the church was organized on April 6, 1830, because she had to take care of those cows. That's how they were going to get their food. And, and so, again, it gives sort of that example, and I think we see it within Emma, but that, that uh, self-reliant, that resilience that we sort of, as a church, hold so very true and dear to us. We see this not only from Joseph, but from era, Emma, the very founders uh, or restorers of the, of the faith. Absolutely. Uh, number 13, I just, I think maybe I knew this one. Um, but this was one that it didn't really dawn on me until just these last couple of years as we've been, you know, talking more about the restoration and, and we've had saints and sort of diving more into this whole thing, is that she was pregnant when Joseph Smith was killed. Yeah, she was. And I think probably that made it all the harder for her um, being pregnant. Um, I think it's also interesting to note that none of 
there are no other children from Joseph Smith's plural wives, but that she did have one more son after he died. So that just compounded the, the concern that she had to be able to care for her family. So David Hiram Smith was born in November of 1844. And yeah, as you as you can imagine, right, the, the death of your husband and then compounded by the emotions uh, that with that and then the uh, the hormones in addition and the, the time of, of giving birth, like at this time, people didn't always make it and the worry and the, who's going to care for everyone like that. We know and hear and share the stories about how Emma Smith was such a strong person, and I think this just is another layer of wow. How how in the world and wow. Yeah, and it's funny because I think there must have been some post-traumatic stress involved for both Emma and this baby in her womb. When he grew up, he was later committed to a mental institution. Um, he just couldn't couldn't deal with reality. And I think that's part of it. But also, if you look at photographs of Emma, and of course, we don't have any photographs of her before Joseph died. They just weren't around in Nauvoo. But she has like this droopy eye, Hmm. which makes me think that I don't know if she had a stroke or if just so much stress and tension caused her. She, She just looks haggard in all of those pictures. Life has really worn her down. The next one, number 14, she was more educated than Joseph and was his first scribe in the translation of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I love this. I love that she uh, probably attended a female school not far from her home in Harmony and that she knew the Bible. In fact, she says at the end of her life, she knew the Bible better than Joseph did. He didn't know that there were walls around Jerusalem. He once asked her and she explained to him. He also didn't know how to pronounce the name Sariah in the Book of Mormon, but he knew how it was spelled and she helped him with that. And I don't think it was ever a And I'm smarter than you are thing. It was, let me help you and let's work together. And I have these skills and you have these skills. She wasn't the prophet. She didn't have, she didn't have the gift of translation that he did. But I really like to think that together they helped produce the Book of Mormon. Um, I don't know how much of the translation she actually scribed, but I sometimes wonder if she, both she and Martin Harris did those first 116 pages or whatever we want to call them. And then when Martin lost them and she had her baby that died, I think it was probably close to the pain of losing another child was this manuscript that was lost. I was going to point when, I was going to point that out because it, it, I mean, assuming that those 116 pages that that Martin took, you know, here, look, proof. Those are likely the first 116 pages, right? I can't imagine that he would have been like, oh, well, skip the first 20 or why we wouldn't have then produced those those first 20 or whatever. So likely most, if not all, of the work of Emma Smith was lost. Right. right. We also know she did translate a little bit later, um, especially when Joseph was translating the Bible, the um, Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And she was very careful with that. Um, and I don't, here's the other thing that I don't know. Um, We know that in section 30 or section 25, given in 1830, that she was to be his scribe, which is sort of a retroactive pronouncement because she had actually scribed for him earlier than that. But I kind of wonder if he was giving this revelation, receiving this revelation for her, did she write it down, this revelation for her own self? And how cool would that be? We don't have the first copy of that revelation. Um, And I don't know if she kept it 
and in all her different moves all over the place, sometimes in the middle of the night and across frozen rivers, um, if she lost it, but it was later copied into a book of Revelations. But I, I really think that she did more than we know. Let us go now to number 15, which is uh, she crossed a frozen river. You sort of cued this up a little bit. A frozen river on foot with two little kids and carrying a baby and a toddler with Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible in pouches under her skirts when they escaped Missouri. <sighs> I know that's exhausting. Just thinking, just saying it or thinking about it. So Joseph thought that in Missouri, they would build up Zion and that he would be able to publish his translation of the Bible. That didn't happen. And he obviously was put in um, Liberty Jail, and she had to figure out how to get her family back to a safe place in Illinois. So he had given his translation, his manuscript to his one of his clerks, James Mulholland. And James Mulholland had given that to um, his sister-in-law, Anne um, Scott, because he thought it, they're not, the mobs aren't going to attack a woman which of course we know that they actually did later on. So Emma went to her and Anne had made the, these pouches and a belt so she could wear it under her skirt. So when they get to the river, they can't cross it. It's not frozen enough to ride across in their wagon. So they have to travel separately, but she has those, that book of, or that Bible translation under her skirt. And she has four little kids and two of them are holding onto her skirt and she has a baby and a toddler and she's walking across that river. And I cannot imagine how fearful that would be. Joseph the third, her oldest son remembers that and writes about it. But like, that would have been one of those scary things that you also have post-traumatic stress over. Yeah, time, time and time again, an opportunity for her to just feel that overwhelming, like I can't ma imagine making my way through one of these things and countless, one after another, after another, after another. Um, number 16 is that she was not at the Whitmer Farm. We sort of touched on this in Fayetteville, New York. Uh, the church was organized uh, April 6, 1830. Likely just like had to keep up the responsibilities at home. Was there any sort of thought of like, you go do this, catch me later? No, I, there isn't evidence of that, but she, they had so many people coming to visit them in Harmony, and her parents were growing more and more antagonistic. I mean, they had Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith, and Hiram, and Samuel, and Oliver Cowdery living there, and Martin Harris would come, and David Whitmer would come, and all these people, Joseph Knight would come. And so I don't know if she just needed some Emma time to chill or what, or I don't know also if she really realized the importance of what was going to be happening in Fayette. And it was quite a journey. It was like a hundred miles away. So it was a big deal to get to there, to get to that location. So I think maybe she just stayed back. Uh, number 17, I think that people, we, we talk about this one, it seems like quite a bit, um, that she delivered nine babies, adopted two, lost six, raised five to adulthood, and one of her sons, David Hiram, was committed to a mental institution. Yeah, so, so um, pregnancy and labor was really hard for Emma. And we don't know the name of the first son that died, but he was buried in the family cemetery. And his grandparents were later buried not far from him. And then she had twins that died. And then she adopted the Murdoch twins. And one of those twins died. And then she had Joseph III who lived. So she had Julia Murdoch Smith and Joseph III. And then she had some good luck with having babies. And um, she had two more sons. 
no, three more sons. And then she had a horrible miscarriage in Nauvoo shortly before the Relief Society was organized. And then even before that, just a few months before that, she lost her son, Don Carlos, who was named after his uncle, Joseph's brother. Um, he was about 14 months old and that must've been tragic. Um, and then she had, she raised these children by herself. Now we know, we are aware that you know, that these deaths occurred, you know, <laughs> one of the Murdoch twins after Joseph Smith was tarred and feathered at the Johnson farm in Hiram, as the story goes. Do we have writings of Emma where she discusses the, the peril and the and the turmoil and emotional, you know, drain that that occurs because of these things? You know, that's a really good question. Um, and I think the answer is actually really sad because we don't. Mm. She didn't leave a journal. We have some of the letters that she wrote to Joseph, her husband. We have a lot of the letters she wrote to her son, Joseph III, as an adult. Um, but there's just, she didn't leave a lot of written record. And I don't, I don't know if she kept it and burned it or destroyed it, or if it's somewhere with 116 pages in the, in the world somewhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So we... We are just taking guesses at what, how she felt and what she did. But the, the way that she cared for her children and the way that she often brought other children into her home and cared for them indicates that she had this mother heart that yearned to care for others and make sure that everyone was taken care of. We're in the home stretch as we make our way towards the 22 things about Emma Smith that we should know about her. Number 18, she was very politically astute and understood the U.S. Constitution, the Illinois State Constitution, and the Charter of the City of Nauvoo. She corresponded with the governor of Illinois, Thomas Carlin, seeking her husband's protection. Yeah, I'm amazed at this. I mean, obviously, she was an intelligent woman, but this correspondence, as, as Joseph is being threatened with being extradited back to Missouri, um, she is appealing to the governor of Illinois to protect her husband. And she does so drawing upon different documents like the constitution and the state constitution and the charter of Nauvoo. And it, it shows her understanding of all of that and her understanding of the way that they've built Nauvoo and the political aspect of the protections that they, as citizens, they deserve and that they should be granted. I um, mean, it's interesting to see how she can speak with Governor Carlin as an equal in the sense that she knows all of this stuff, but then how he is, is not favorable towards her. And he's, he doesn't consider her a peer at all. He wants to be on more of a, of a good relationship with the governor of Missouri. So that's why that happened. But it's, it's interesting that she is capable of seeking protection for her husband. Is that correspondence available that people can read? It is. It is. Unfortunately, it is at the Community of Christ Archive in Independence, Missouri. Um, but it's 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 really beautiful. Uh, number 19, her second husband, Louis Bideman, 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 uh, had an affair while they were married. OK. And then Emma raised. This is the thing that got me. I was like, oh, like she hadn't been through enough already. Right. That the fact that he was infidelist, infidelitous. But Emma raised the illegitimate child and welcomed the mother into her home because she couldn't provide for herself. And on her deathbed, Emma made Lewis and the woman promise to get married so their son would be legitimate. What? Right? What? Right. I know. That is crazy to me, too. Lewis wasn't, um, I don't know, he wasn't known for his uh, faithfulness. He had been married, his first marriage, they had two daughters and his wife died. His second marriage, 
um, the woman didn't like his daughters and so they separated. But in between that time he had an affair and the woman had a baby and the woman kept that baby. We don't even know who that is and what happened. And then he marries Emma and brings those two daughters into the household and Emma helps to raise them. So then he has an affair while they're married to a woman named Nancy Abercrombie in Nauvoo. And she has a baby named Charlie and Emma brings that baby into her home because Nancy can't take care of him. And Charlie talks about how Emma was a great mother to him. So then Nancy can't work. She can't find work. There's not a lot going on in Nauvoo right now. It's not that easy to find a job. So um, she becomes a nurse to Emma and she's actually Emma's nurse as she's dying. And that's when Emma brings the two, Nancy and Lewis together. And they got married about a year after she died. Do we know, in a, in a church that uh, fancies itself some genealogical history, do we know what happened to the Biteman Abercrombie line? Did they ever end up joining the church? Okay, this is crazy. Charlie's, I can't remember exactly how it works, but either his, I think it's his granddaughter. Um, her name was Vesta, which is an awesome name, right? Mm-hmm. Vesta Crawford. She actually joins the church and she is an editor for the Relief Society magazine. And she writes a biography of Emma Smith that never gets published, but it's in the archive at the University of Utah in their collections. It doesn't get published because at that time, Emma wasn't considered um, a faithful member of the church. And the church basically told her if she ever published that, that she would lose her job at the Relief Society magazine. So it's this incredible uh, collection that she has. And it's kind of a, a much more first person, in a sense, once or twice or three times removed. But she had some pretty interesting access to Emma and to her records. And it was really fun to go through that and look through that. Has it ever been published or made more widely available? No, it hasn't. It's just you have to make an appointment and go go through the folder. It's a, just a typed manuscript. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I'm glad I asked that question because. Well, and it took me a long time to figure out the connection. Like I knew there was this Vesta Crawford collection and manuscript, and it was cited in several other books about Emma. And so I went to check it out. And it was later that I realized that she was actually a descendant of Charlie Biedemann. Uh, All right. So we've got uh, three more now and we've got limited amount of time. uh, So I want to make sure we give them the proper a uh, time to it. Joseph, this is number 20. Joseph came for her from the spirit world when she died. What? Yeah. So, okay, this is crazy. So a couple of nights before she died, she had a dream or a vision. And interestingly, she told her nurse who recorded this and her nurse was Nancy Abercrombie. But she said that she, Joseph came to her and took her to this beautiful mansion and, and took her inside the mansion. And there was a nursery and her baby, Don Carlos, who had died at the age of 14 months, was in that nursery. And Emma was so excited to see him. And she picked him up and she said to Joseph, but where are the others? And Joseph said, they will come. You will have them. You will have every single one of them. And then she turned around and she saw Jesus Christ, which is something that she'd been promised in section 25 in that 1830 revelation. And then like we mentioned earlier, a few days later, when she did die in the middle of the night, her her daughter, Julia, was with her and she heard her mother say, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. And she thought she meant Joseph, her son. And so she ran and got Joseph, her brother, and they came and she had, she had died. And so Joseph came for her just the same way that he had come for Brigham Young two years earlier. 
Number 21, she owned a half share of a popular steamboat on the Mississippi River that was used for parties and entertainment. Yeah, so this was a thing. And I think Joseph actually owned a half a share with someone else. And as he and Emma worked out their um, differences and difficulties surrounding polygamy, and Emma expressed her concern about not having her own money or property or means to support the family if anything happened, um, he gave her that half share. So, And there were really great parties on that boat. Okay. I just had never, uh, I'd never even considered that or even really heard about that. So... That's kind, yeah. that, that's kind of a fun thing to be able to sort of suss out and, and, and know about. And, and, and what I love about, um, you know, when, when individuals like yourself say, hey, I want to come into the cultural hall and, and I say, hey, come up with some points. I love that many of these are just things that we go, well, I didn't know that. And then when we're in conversation with other members of the church or non-members, we can say, hey, did you know? Half share of a Mississippi River boat. Oh, okay. <laughs> she actually loved parties, and she threw a lot of parties. And well, her house was always, it was the party house. Uh, I, I'm not sure if this is scripture or written somewhere, but I have been told um, that there ain't no party like an Emma Smith party, because an <laughs> Emma Smith party don't stop. I'm that, That's... I'm that, that, I think that's scripture. Yeah, okay, okay. I'm not sure what section or verse, but yep. um, it brings us to the last one, and then this is where we end it all out, number 22. She always testified of the prophetic role of Joseph Smith as a prophet and of the Book of Mormon up through the end of her life. Yeah, and I love that. Regardless of the difficulties and the differences that she had with Brigham Young um, or the difficulty of her own life, in February of 1879, just a few months before she died, her sons interviewed her and she testified that she she knew Joseph was a prophet. And she did say mostly because there's no way he could have written the Book of Mormon um, on his own. But she said it was a marvel and a wonder. And she said, I was an active participant in that. And she was she remained true to those claims and it's, it's a beautiful thing to know and to recognize her role in all of that so knowing all that you know i mean you you know so much you've written the book uh, that people will be able to get and will when that book's available we'll we'll include that link in the in the show notes so that people can be able to purchase that and and be able to enjoy that that which we have spoken of and other things certainly from the book but what 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 difference has knowing all this made on your life or has it Oh, it's made a huge difference in my life. I think the fact that Joseph could not have been a prophet without Emma, that they worked together and that she was um, the biggest comfort and cheerleader for him makes all the difference in the world. I also think knowing Joseph, I believe he was really progressive regarding women and that he probably talked through so many things with her and that she helped him process through all of that. And I love that role that she played. And it makes me feel like I can play that that type of role, too, in the restoration, that I can be an active participant and that I can still be feisty and stand up for what I believe in and demand my place as a woman. I, I have loved learning more about her and I've loved realizing how important women are in the restoration. Amen, sister. Now. We ask three questions of everyone who steps into the cultural hall, so I will ask those of you now. The first question is, Is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I am the gospel doctrine teacher, and it's really fun to teach over Zoom. When I say that, it's hard. Yeah. 
But man, to have Jenny Reader, Dr. Jenny Reader, as your teacher of gospel doctrine, maybe you'll have to send me a Zoom link. Maybe I'll have to drop in on that class. That would be just awesome to be able to be a part of. Second, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? One time I was the ward communications person. And I loved it. So I maintained the Facebook page and I had a different, every day I had a different thing. It was like Monday was good news minute Monday. And you had to put in your good news. Tuesday was, oh, I can't remember. We also had um, wonder Wednesday, tell us something really great that's going on or highlight someone in the ward. Throwback Thursday was something from history. Feminist Friday was a story about a woman. Um, Saturday's a special day, a day to get ready for Sunday where I'd list all the things, but I loved doing that. And I loved, I felt like I could contribute to this culture of the ward and that people felt like they, they knew each other. And I would love to do that again. The final question we ask, we ask you to interpret it however you would like, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? My favorite part of my faith is the central role of Jesus Christ and knowing that I can contribute this much, this little much, And he can make it so much bigger. He can enlarge and expand me that he is the author and the finisher of my faith. So he helps me start to have faith. And then where I lack or I'm incomplete, he can finish that and make that complete and whole. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the cultural hall show.